Good morning. As you may have heard, our two uh, full-time pastors are on well-deserved vacations. In fact, I think I heard Jimmy mutter something about youth trip as he went off on his vacation. So uh, my name is Kevin Heckman. I'm one of the ruling elders here. If you're a visitor with us today, please come back next week. Give us a second chance. I guess that's what I'm saying. Uh, I have chosen uh, for this morning for us to focus on uh, two passages from the Word of God. It's in your bulletin. Uh, If you are so inclined, I would ask you to pick up a copy of this or look at it in your mobile device. And let's jump right in. So I would invite all who are able to stand uh, while I read both passages. First passage is from uh, the book of Genesis, chapter 3, a familiar passage. It goes like this, starting with uh, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were both naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Skipping down a little to verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Second passage from the New Testament, from the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews has this to say, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You may be seated thus far, the reading of the Lord's word for us this morning. Father in heaven, uh, we have opened your word this morning, and we know that this is a living thing, but it can only be a living thing if you, if your spirit inhabits us. So this morning, as I endeavor to illuminate these words, I just pray for the presence of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you will bring life to these words, that you would quicken um, dead spirits, that you would encourage smoldering reeds, and that you would send us out of here encouraged, equipped uh, to do your work and to be your people. These things we ask in your name. Amen. So uh, I had a dream when I was young. It, it, It wasn't nearly as interesting or as inspiring as Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, I assure you. Um, and I think I was around 12 years old, couldn't have been more than 12 years old. And in my dream, and I still remember this vividly today, in my dream, there was a party at my house, and all of my classmates were there. 
all of my schoolmates. And, you know, it's kind of an intimate thing to have people over to your house, especially classmates when you're young and you're in school. And I remember showing them around, you know, introducing them to the pets, to all that kind of thing. And there was a girl in my class, and I, I, I can still see her, uh, but I can't remember her name. So with apologies to Becky's everywhere, I'll just call her Becky. Now, Becky, uh, Becky was, uh, she had the reputation for being the most proper southern lady in the class. Right? So uh, if there were any kind of breach of manners or decorum, Becky could reliably be counted upon to get the vapors. But, you know, everything was going fine. Everything was going fine. We're all having fun. Life was good. But Becky, all of a sudden, Becky takes in a sharp draw of breath. She tilts her nose up to the sky, and with her other arm, she points at me, and she says really loudly so everybody could hear her, Kevin, where are your Pants. And I looked, everybody looked, and it was true. I don't know how it happened, um, but uh, somehow I was indeed uh, pantsless, sans of pants, if you were, if you will. Uh, and up until that moment, uh, for whatever reason, uh, my apparent lack of trow had gone unnoticed, or at least uncommented on, by everybody else in my class. But Becky, Becky noticed, and Becky was offended. Becky was scandalized, and Becky thought everyone else should be, too. And then that moment, that pleasant little party, where everything was going great, uh, turned into something like that scene from A Charlie Brown Christmas you know, where he brings that pathetic little tree into the pageant and hails of derisive laughter just break out. And that eternal question, boxers or briefs, Spider-Man, Superman, it was on display for everyone to see. And uh, it was not a good feeling. I could feel the walls of my world closing in, and I got red, and I got hot, and I wanted to run and hide. And I remember in my dream, I was right up against the back wall of my house, and there was a door behind me. So I turned around to go through the door to find pants, maybe, um, and the door was locked, and I was trapped up against this wall with this group of laughing classmates, and it was such an awful feeling that I woke up. And apparently... To this day, I still remember this. Who told you that you were naked? Well, in my case, it was Becky. <laughs> but but what, what was that? What was that feeling that, that evoked such strong emotions in me, that, that terrified me, that made me wake up in a panic, in a sweat? That was shame. That's what I was feeling. I was feeling shame. And that shame that I felt and that we all feel is what Adam and Eve experienced for the very first time after they sinned. I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. We were introduced to shame at the fall. It was a tool of the enemy then and now, to separate us from God. 
Shame is designed to drive us away from God, into the shadows, away from each other, away from the only source of rescue that we actually have. And I would argue that shame is at least as powerful in our lives and in our communities today as it was in the days of Adam and Eve. I bet this morning, with just a little bit of self-reflection, you can easily think about things of yourself that make you feel shame. And they're probably not quite as cute or as entertaining as my little safe story. Same shame seeks to drive us into the darkness. It wants to keep us there. It continues to tell us that God is not good and that in order to survive, we have to stay hidden from God and from each other because we're not worthy. We're not acceptable. In fact, we are indecent. But, but God... You see, in the text, God does not leave Adam and Eve in the darkness. He calls after them. He clothes them, and he announces his plan to save them and their descendants. And the remedy for Adam and Eve was, a, was an animal skin and a far-off promise. But the remedy for us is the cross of Christ, which is a fulfillment of that promise. And also, if you're paying attention, you notice it's also a fulfillment of that image of the animal skins, blood shed to cover our sins for our salvation. And when Jesus took on human flesh, when he went to the cross to keep the promises of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit united in love to, to, to restore us to himself, he came to solve the problem of our sin, yes, but I believe, and I believe the author of Hebrews also sees this, he also came to give us freedom from our shame. And when we look at Christ on the cross, suffering under the burden of our sin, we should see not only his love and his forgiveness, but we should see the death of our shame. We weren't created for this, were we? We were created for joy, and we were created for harmony, and we were created for lives of generosity and openness and transparency and fellowship, and shame is the opposite of all of those things. And so I would argue that the beginning of our new life in Christ, both as individuals and as a church and as God's people, is understanding how the gospel can start to set us free from this bondage and what life clothed in the rich robes of Christ's righteousness actually looks like. And for that, we need two things. One, we need a champion. We need somebody who's stronger than we are. I mean, imagine, remember the force of the, uh, the feeling of shame, and just in my dream, how crushing it was. It's an incredibly powerful force. We need somebody stronger than us to go to battle against it and to defeat it on our behalf. We need a champion. But we need more than that, don't we? We also need a restoration of fellowship. We need someone who can enter in. We need somebody who knows what we experience. We need somebody who can be with us in the dark times. We need someone who can be closer than a brother and still accept us, who can pronounce us worthy, who can tell us that we're never alone. And only Christ can do this. Let's define a couple of terms here. For example, guilt. Guilt says... I did something wrong, and it needs to be made right. It's a relatively simple formula. 
Shame is much more insidious because shame says, I am something wrong. And for that, there is no remedy. Shame is that deep-seated belief, that knowledge that there's something about me, that if people knew it, if God knew it, it would make me unfit for company, that I would be rejected, I would be an outcast, I would be abandoned. It's that sense that somehow we're unworthy of love and fellowship, not necessarily because of the things that we've done, because we can make those things right, but because of who we are or who we're not. One of the reasons uh, I decided to talk about this is because our society recognizes this as a problem. If you've been paying attention, one of the good things about where we are today is that our society is actually starting to use the same lingo. It's starting to talk about the problem of shame. So this is, a, I think, a key moment for the church to step in and say we've got something to contribute to this conversation. And our society is just riddled with shame. I mean, there's so many uh, things we could discuss. Our, our society is a performance society, as Troy pointed out. Essentially, our society says that by default, when you're born, when you and I are born, we are, we have the status of being worthless, ugly, no talent, nobodies, until or unless we can prove otherwise. And this leads to all kinds of issues. I see this in the workplace all the time. So just one example is, this is why we can't celebrate when other people have accomplishments or when they do well, because it just makes us look worse by comparison, makes us feel bad about ourselves. Body shaming, this is a huge, this is an epidemic issue in our society. We were fearfully and wonderfully made. Were we not? We're just a little bit lower than the angels. We carry something no other creature does, the very image of God. What glory compares to that? And yet, what did Adam and Eve experience when they first fell? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. Because I was naked, and I hid myself. They had no pants. Uh, Apparently, pants were not part of the created order, so what changed? God knew. God knew that the very nature of Adam and Eve had been corrupted, and it showed up immediately in their attitudes about their bodies. Because of the sin in their lives, they felt the need to hide from God and each other. And you have them off trying to put together fig leaves. They, they felt their indecency. Do you know that by age 10 here in America, about 84% of children report that they were afraid of becoming fat? It's not because they're worried about their triglycerides, is it? They've been introduced to body shame by their nature and by their neighbors. So this shame, it it seeps into and it corrupts every dimension of our lives. And of course, the opposite of shame, even what society is trying to get to is a place of joy, a place of transparency, uh, uh, a place where I can be known and I can be known, where I don't have to fear, where I can be vulnerable. I can be honest because my reputation is no longer at risk, where I can say I'm in a place where I am not an embarrassment. This is what we want. This is what we crave. So even though our society is starting to grapple with this a little bit, if you've seen some of Brene Brown's work, highly recommended. But the problem is, even though our society recognizes the problem, it doesn't recognize the solution. They don't have a biblical worldview. They don't understand that, yes, we were created for these things. We were created good. But every dimension of us has been infected by the fall 
And so because the world can't acknowledge sin, shame then becomes a, uh, becomes a feature, not a bug. It, it becomes something to be hacked, not to be overcome. And so our culture then wants to paradoxically deny that anything is shameful. And it wants to blame others for making us feel bad. We live in a world that paradoxically, you know, it seems to know no shame. And in fact, we just like to blame each other for shame. Your lack of acceptance is the reason I feel bad. You should feel bad for making me feel bad. You should be ashamed because you know how that goes. And it just, it spirals and it doesn't go anywhere. You know, I realize now, looking back uh, as an adult on my dream, that people like Becky are dealing with their own deep sense of shame. The reason Becky was the way she was uh, is because deep down she felt that she was indecent herself and any opportunity to draw the attention off of herself and her own sense of inadequacy to someone else was golden. This is how we operate as, uh, as, a, as a society. But we know, we know that deep in our hearts that, that our sin and our corruption are real. They're not imaginary. There are shameful things in this world and we don't need to redefine evil as good. We, we need a remedy for the disease itself. And it's all very exhausting, and it really gets us nowhere. <clears throat> so even though we are, I think, by almost any measure, the freest society ever, I mean, anything goes in our society, right? And yet, at the same time, we're the most addicted, uh, the, the, the most in debt, uh, the unhealthiest, and the most anxiety-ridden society probably ever. Something isn't working. And the good news is that Jesus didn't come just to empathize with us. He didn't come just to say, I feel your pain. He came to set us free. He came to reverse this curse. He came to do what Adam could not do. He came to restore us to God. Jesus is the cure for our shame because he went to war against it and he overcame it. Look at Hebrews again. He exhorts us to lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How do we do that? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus entered into our shame to put an end to our shame. How did he do that? Let's look, at, let's look at some ways. First of all, just by nature of his incarnation, Jesus' introduction to shame started day one as a human being. He was born in a stable. His mother was not exactly married when he was conceived. Uh, not exactly an auspicious beginning. He was not good-looking or wealthy, Scripture tells us. Sorry, Joel Osteen. He came from a backwater province. Even his disciples apparently sounded like rednecks. I mean, from a first-hand perspective, it wasn't exactly an auspicious beginning Jesus had experienced with shame and inadequacy from day one. But more important than that, of course, was his mission. As Isaiah told us, his purpose in coming was to bear our griefs, and to carry our sorrows. And the cross, the cross, of course, was the ultimate shame. The death on the Roman cross was the most shameful way to die there was. Even the Hebrews said, Cursed is he who hangs on the tree. 
So then, of course, there was the experience of being on the cross itself. You know, crucifixion, Roman crucifixion, was incredibly brutal. But in top of being brutal, it was designed specifically to heap humiliation on top of brutality. And this is why Jesus was not executed in a private room somewhere with a couple of witnesses. Where was he executed? Right in front of the city of Jerusalem at the main gate during Passover so the maximum number of people could see it and join in the shaming. You know, we're too prudish to depict it in our art, but the vast majority of Roman crucifixion victims were stripped completely naked the entire time they were on the cross. No fig leaf for Jesus. No animal would be sacrificed to cover him. Matter of fact, he was at this moment a picture of what God had promised in the garden, blood shed for our sin. He was exposed completely to sacrifice for our sin. So over the hours, of course, the the stripped victim would, would, would lose control of their bodily functions in front of everyone as they wrestled to hold on to life there on the cross in front of all those people. Um, the crowd would join in with cursing and throwing things. It was, it was a, a source of entertainment. Seneca reports that sometimes executioners would pound sharpened sticks into the ground at the base of the cross, aimed at the groin area of the victim to give them a little extra incentive to continue to struggle for life and to give the crowd something else to be entertained by. So this Jesus, he knew shame upon shame in his birth, the circumstances of his birth, the way he led his life, and the circumstances of his crucifixion. But even that wasn't the extent of it. And this brings me to one of the other ways, the second way that Jesus, uh, Jesus is the solution, the remedy for our shame. He entered in. He entered into our shame. He didn't just have his own. Scripture teaches us over and over again that the wellspring of our sanctification, the foundation of our justification, and our hope for perseverance is the day-by-day, moment-by-moment union with Christ. Here, Paul in Galatians, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Turn the page to 2 Corinthians, and he says to that church, with a little exasperation, I think, in his voice, he says, Church, do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you. You see, Jesus wasn't going to the cross as a ordinary, common criminal. He was going to the cross voluntarily as a sacrifice for our sin, for my sin. He was going as our substitute, our sin offering. He was, as John said, the Lamb of God who came to do what? To take away the sins of the world. And this meant that he wasn't enduring just the pain and the humiliation and the suffering of just one man in history having a bad day. Now, he had to shoulder not only his own firsthand experience of shame, 
but he had to take on all the guilt and all the shame of all the people he had come to save. Like Psalm 69 says, the, 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 the insults of those who insult you fall on me. And I, I struggle, I struggle to wrap my head around this. I mean, I think back to my memories of shame. Think back, of your, think back to yours. This idea that one human being could take all of that, take your shame, take my shame, multiply that times all of us, put that on one man, no human being could bear the burden of taking all of that on and facing justice alone. I mean, think of it, your shame, my shame, and the shame of murderers and embezzlers and child abusers and, 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 and addicts and liars and cheats and just plain old underachievers. The shame of Peter, his own disciple, who denied Jesus three times and couldn't even be there to see him on the cross. The shame of Peter, the shame of Paul, who if he wasn't already would be hunting down Christians, men, women, and children, putting them in jail, some of them sending them even to their deaths, who staffed the cloakroom at Stephen's stoning, the shame of Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons in her. What must they have told her to do? The shame of of David and Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, the shame of the Israelites who made a golden calf and worshipped it while Moses was still on the mountain taking the law from God. The shame of the, the lying, dysfunctional family that was pretty much Abram's entire family tree. The shame of Sarah, who laughed, the shame of Lot in the cave with his daughters, the shame of Noah in his drunken nakedness, and the shame of Adam and Eve when they believed the lie about God. And they took and ate, and they cast the entire human race into sin and immediately turned on each other. And they tried to hide from God. You start to see why the crucifixion was such an incredible burden for Jesus to bear. Why the Garden of Gethsemane was not just a case of the jitters. He was sin for us. He bore my shame. And according to the author of Hebrews, how did he regard that foe? He saw it. He understood it. He saw it for what a, a, what a terrible thing it was. He saw what he went through in the garden as he contemplated taking that on. But how did he feel about it? He despised it. He hated it. He held it as if it were nothing in no regard. How is it possible to take on all of that and put it on the shoulders of one man? Well, listen to the Heidelberg Catechism when it asks, what type of mediator and deliverer must we seek? Here's what it says. One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is at the same time true God. And friends, I have I read, I read a few books, and I cannot explain to you, I cannot put into words how it's possible that the third person of the inseparable and eternal trinity could become sin, my sin. I don't know how to explain what it was like to, to experience the weight of our condemnation. All I know is that the Son was hidden, 
And this same Jesus who constantly referred to God as his father suddenly used impersonal language when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I would argue that up to this point, Jesus had experienced life as we do. That was the purpose of his coming, his incarnation. But he had not yet experienced the hiddenness of God. But now he has. Which is all the more reason why he is able to minister to all of us here today who feel separated from God. Those words, why have you forsaken me? Those are words that Adam and Eve and you and I deserve to say. That would be justice. That's what we earned. But instead... Instead, he took my, sh- my sin, and he took my shame, and he took it to that cross, and he experienced it, all of it, as if it were his own. And then he says, it is finished. And then once again, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And you know, my... Shame is so ingrained in me that when I see that, I still want to run and hide. How could I ever repay a debt like that? But that's the opposite of why he did it. Jesus came to put an end to our isolation. He came to call us out of the trees. He came to tell us the good news that he took our guilt and our shame and he put it to death on the cross so that we would have once again the joy of fellowship with God, of being in the Father's presence without shame, without guilt, to be able to say that because of Christ, I am not embarrassing. And this crucifixion of Christ is not some historical footnote, you know, to intellectually help us try harder to be better people. I would argue that the crucifixion of Jesus is, and the death of our shame is our present reality. It's a moment-by-moment foundation for, uh, for our being in and with Jesus. And especially in those moments in the dark of the night when you're feeling the memory of those shame, when you're experiencing the depth of shame, when you're in the grips of that besetting sin, when Satan wants to drive you out and tell you that there's no one who can save you, this is when this union of Christ is so important because Jesus can say to us, I know, I see, because I experienced it, all of it, on the cross myself with you. You don't have to find the nerve to come and tell me about it. I already know. I did too. I took it. You're never alone. You never have to hide from God again. That besetting sin that you're struggling with, I know I walked it with you every moment. I was as guilty as you are so you can be as pure as I am. Come to me. And his good news is that this is, this is, it's not even the end of the story, is it? It's not even the end of the crucifixion story because it, what happened next? It was just the beginning. As Augustine said, Jesus, this Jesus, he endured death as a lamb, but he devoured it like a lion. And having put to death our sin and having and defeated shame, Jesus, this Jesus is raised from the dead, uncorrupted, victorious as our forerunner. And because he doesn't just take away our sin and our shame, he gives us 
his righteousness as if we had done everything right. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He became naked so that I could be clothed. Not just clothed, adorned. He experienced God's disfavor so that he could come and pronounce God's favor over people like you and me. You know, at the, at the risk of uh, stretching my, my analogy, my dream to the breaking point, it's almost as if Jesus was standing next to me, up against that wall, facing Becky, saying to my accuser, yes, this man is wearing no pants, <laughs> but I love him. And I became completely naked all day long in front of thousands of people for pantsless people like him everywhere. Furthermore, I have adorned him with his robe of blazing purity so that he is, in fact, the best-dressed person at the party. The real question, Becky, is why your filthy rags of self-righteousness? Why do you feel those are acceptable party attire? (laughs) Maybe that's just a little fantasy I have. I don't know. (laughs) Sorry. But this, this, friends, this is the wellspring of the Christian life. I in Christ and Christ in me, day by day, moment by moment. You know, this doesn't allow us to take our sin lightly, does it? It doesn't allow us because we know what it cost us, what it cost him, it cost him to keep us in the garden. But it does allow us to unburden ourselves. It does allow us to stop deceiving ourselves. It does allow us to finally experience deep joy, genuine fellowship, and intimacy, and freedom with God. So this is all wonderful stuff, right? But it's very individual. What would a community of people who had experienced the death of their shame look like? Well, we don't really have to speculate, do we? I I would argue that we already know And we know what they look like. We know that a community who have experienced the death of their shame are people who can live lives in a fundamentally different way than the world around them. Lives of openness and transparency and generosity because they no longer are relying on their own defense mechanisms to prop up their own reputations. They can stop being fake. They can start being real. They can exhibit real joy. How do I know this? Well, think about it. How do we know that Peter, for example, was hot-headed, impetuous, and cowardly? He told us. How do we know that he carried a sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest? He, he, he told us. How do we know that he was like the, like the worst disciple everywhere, anywhere? I mean, he, he told Mark, and he told him to write it down in his gospel, and he told us so that we would know Not because he was proud of his sin. We know that's not true. It broke his heart. But after he had experienced the death of his shame on the cross, he realized that the story of God's grace working through his weakness was his true story. Not that fake news story of him being a a wise and competent disciple. After all, he was the oldest. And he told his real story boldly. He realized that the main story of his life was not the one that he was struggling to make up. It was the story of God's grace working in him. That was his true story. How do we know that Paul had blood on his hands, that he wasn't an impressive speaker, that he had embarrassing health problems? 
He told us he, he had experienced the death of his shame. Remember what Paul said, God's strength is made perfect in my weakness. How do we know the sons of thunder asked their mom to have Jesus seat them at the right hand after the resurrection? Because they told us. They told us. How embarrassing. I mean, come on. Those are the kinds of things you sweep under the rug, you know, if you're writing a gospel. But no, they told us because they had experienced the death of their shame, and they wanted us to be a community that glorified Jesus' reputation and not our own. They wanted to show the world that there was a better way, and it wasn't denying, and it wasn't celebrating, and it wasn't hiding, and it wasn't escalating shame. It was putting shame to death and living new life in Christ. Then you've got people living in the light. Then you've got people who have come out of the shadows. Then you've got people who no longer are in prison to guilt and shame. And these are the things that I think have marked the church throughout history. Scars and glory. If you haven't already, and I know it's painful, but I want you to think... Uh, Once again, just one more moment about your own shame, whatever it is that comes to mind. And I'm sure something comes to mind. Now, I hope that you you have experienced the death of your shame. I hope that you have been able to lay your hands on it, lead it to the altar of of the cross, and to see it put to death there. Matter of fact, I know this is true. I've heard many of your stories. But now what? Now what? What do we do as a church, for example, MetroCrest? How many people do you know, for example, that, that don't come to church? Maybe not this church, any church, because they, they don't like to have to lie. Well, I, you know you have to lie if you come to church, right? Because what's the first question you get asked when you come to church? How are you? And what do you have to say? I'm fine. Who here is fine this morning? You don't have to raise your hands. (laughs) So I want to invite you just for a moment just to think about the people around you, in your home, at work, um, here maybe in the room. Is there someone struggling, somebody who's still in bondage to that same shame that, that you've been experiencing freedom from? How are you helping them? How are we helping them in Christ's name? Is it possible that it's as simple as just starting to tell our gospel stories to each other, our real stories? And maybe by the grace of God, you have been experiencing um, a freedom from, I don't know, struggles with depression. But nobody knows. It could be right next to you sitting somebody who's in the grips of that right now, asking themselves, what kind of Christian am I if I have depression? And they look down the row and they see you and they see someone who's fine and they think, I could never, I could never be like that. Not knowing that the reason you're like that is because of the grace of God already working in your life. Is it possible? Is it possible that just by starting to tell our real stories, we could draw more people out of the darkness and into the light and show them the way to the cross? Is it possible that our lingering shame, even over the victories that Christ has been winning in our lives, keeps us from telling our true stories? You know, I had a, I had a distinguished uh, 
friend who was a professional, had a reputation to think about, stand up in a, a, a prior church, 300, 350 people maybe one day. And he said, basically, I am not fine. He said, I was imprisoned by a pornography addiction for most of my life. And it almost destroyed me and all that I hold dear. By the grace of God, I have been experiencing his forgiveness and the death of my shame. And I'm here to tell you that it's possible. And I want to help. Anybody who wants a friend to help shoulder the burden and see what Jesus is doing in my life, come and see me after church. And he sat down. Ten men that day went to him after the service and said, I thought I was the only one. I need help. Shame had driven me into a life of secrecy that just caused my sin to fester. I need this. A couple years ago, um, a guy posted a video online, pretty well known. He was my advisor in college. He's pretty famous. He's been the president of a seminary. He's written books. He's been on television. Video he put online started out like this. It said, hello, my name is Richard. And I'm an alcoholic. Now, he was not proud of his sin, and, and by the grace of God, the rest of his stories, that he had been sober for years. But as he put it, he said, I realized I wasn't showing Jesus' righteousness by covering up my secret struggles. I was showing my own. I am not fine, he said. This side of glory, I will not be. But Christ's church is a place for sinners like me. And the, the healing starts by telling the truth. What if we became known as the place where none of us were fine? What if we became known as a, as a, as a community of people who understood, yes, the depth and the reality and the price that was paid for our sin and didn't deny it or celebrate it or hide from it, but rather just told people, put it on the cross of Jesus. He can bear it and enter into a community of people on the same journey. What would that be like? I think that would be the Church of Christ, the body of Christ. Christ in fellowship with his people, his people in fellowship with each other. How we live in a sinful world, I'm not going to ask you to take a number and line up here and tell your story. Do that next week. (laughs) But I want to encourage you to ask Jesus to send his spirit into your life and to to, to show you in what way that by telling your own true gospel story, or maybe you need to understand better first what your true gospel story is, you can start sharing it with other people who need to hear it to let them know that they're not alone. And most of all, they don't need to hear our words, right? They need to hear the words of Jesus Christ speak into their lives. You are enough and because I'm enough. You are worthy because I am worthy. You are loved because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work since before eternity passed to join back together what we broke apart. And you don't need a fig leaf, and you don't need animal skins. You don't even need pants. 
What you need is you need Jesus to bear your sorrows and carry your griefs, to hear his words speaking over you. I am with you always, even in those really, really difficult moments when shame is just coming down on us like a, like a ton of bricks. And, as the author of Hebrews says, we're also surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who have gone before and who have also experienced the death of their shame. People like Peter and Paul and Mary Magdalene and maybe the person sitting right next to you. You can be naked and you can be unashamed with Jesus because he despised the shame on the cross and he devoured it like a lion, like it was nothing. And we can go out with joy without having to worry about the Beckys of this world. Why? Because he was more naked than we would ever be. And he has adorned us more richly than Solomon with all of his righteousness so that we are not enough, not just enough in Christ. We are glorious. That joy that was set before Jesus as he went to the cross was the joy of redeeming us and and, and doing the Father's work of restoring us to himself. It's the story of the Bible. And the first step on that journey is for us to experience the death of our shame. On his cross... So this morning, I would invite you to look away from Becky. Look to Christ on his cross. See there love supreme. See there a power greater than death, able to overcome and to accomplish the death of your shame. And be raised with him to new life. Amen.